0: have the privilege of having Ralph Guilin uh, and Nikki here with us from the rescue mission, um, and it really is a distinct privilege to have them here. And this whole season-through encounter, we have been talking about God with us in the mess. What does it look like for God to be with us in trauma, for God to be with us in deep suffering, grief, and loss, and even for God to be with us in and through our addiction? And so um, I'm just going to go ahead and pray for us. And then uh, Nikki and Ralph will, will take over. And we're just so grateful to have you both here. So thank you so much. Thank you. God, we love you. And it is a great privilege that we can gather in your name. Jesus, I pray a hedge of protection around this room. As we might be delving into difficult topics for all of us. But God, we know, again, that your spirit is with us. I pray for your inspiration. I pray for your healing. I pray for your wisdom. And thank you so much for Rolf and Nikki. Would you bless them immeasurably. Um, And thank you for the treasures that they will share. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.
1: Amen. Thanks, Nikki. Well, it's good to be here. I always kind of question when you say it's a distinct privilege because <laughs> distinct can mean peculiar. It's a peculiar privilege, privilege to have me here. So, but I'll take, I'll take it in the best way possible. But, uh, you know, this was, um, uh, it was just a joy to come here, uh, to, uh, you know, I have, uh, uh, a great friendship with Denny Wayman, um, and just been such a model to me, one of my heroes, um, And just looking around a room like this, I see a lot of friendly, familiar faces who have been involved uh, and affiliated with the rescue mission for some time. Now, um, I am, you know, I was asked to talk about God with us in the mess of addiction. And uh, even though I am responsible for a state certified treatment facility, I am not a treatment professional. So I did have fun making a PowerPoint and kind of you know, living out that part of me that wants to be a college professor, but, uh, this is probably more, uh, out of what I've observed rather than being credentialed. Now I start with a picture on a paddleboard just cause it's a cool picture. So this is meant to be a discussion. We can talk. Um, and if the conversation lags, ask me about paddleboarding and I'll talk about it a lot because, uh, this is, that's me kind of six mornings a week. I take off into the sunrise and paddle off Goleta beach. And, uh, it's kind of, a uh, just, like I said, I don't get to do many PowerPoints, so I put a picture of me paddleboarding in it, you know, <laughs> deal with it. So, but, um, you know, my job, you know, I, like, as I said, I don't possess even an entry-level credential in working with addicts. My job is to make sure that those who are working with addicts have the resources that they need to have. We have the infrastructure and the rescue mission is, uh, in addition to being a homeless shelter, or are the only place, Um, between Venture and Santa Maria where you can find a meal and a bed 365 nights a year, no questions asked. But we also, over time, over the last 25 years have become a state-certified addiction treatment facility because one of the things that we observed is there are multiple causes why people are dealing with homelessness and cyclical incarceration. But one of the things that we landed on was how common substance abuse uh, was a contributing factor. And so what kind of my predecessors did was they realized, if we want to make kind of a meaningful response to this, let's see what we as the church can do in helping people with their addictions. And one of the things we realized is, and you'll probably see this a little bit when I'm talking is, that is not something that, you know, you can be naively altruistic about. You can't just love people out of an addiction. Uh, Love is part of it. But what we started to realize is there are behavioral all kinds of different mental health issues and you really do need to know what you're doing and so we decided um to become uh, a state certified addiction uh recovery center Uh, that means the same people that accredit the betty ford center and hazelden also come to the rescue mission um because we just believe that if we're going to be doing this uh we can't be messing with people's lives we need to kind of be using you know informed science and a and a credentialed approach to do that. And the good thing about it is is that as far as we know um, we are not uh, there is no other rescue mission in the country that is doing treatment to a state certified level um, and it also kind of shows in what we do because the average cost of treatment nationwide uh, is about $19,000 for a month of residential treatment which puts treatment out of the reach of many of us let alone somebody who may have been Kind of in prison for the last 18 years. By comparison, we're able to offer a full year of treatment to somebody in our program for $34,000 a year, and we do that regardless of their ability to pay. In fact, if you can pay, you're probably not one of our clients. And so what we figured out is first of all, we scale it rather significantly. We have 69 beds for treatment, which makes us a very large treatment facility. Many of them are about 8 to 12 beds. And then because we're a nonprofit organization and a ministry, Uh, We are obviously not involved in kind of the larger business that surrounds treatment, which is kind of getting medical insurance and billing involved, and a lot of people are making a lot of money off it. And the outcomes that we see are really encouraging, uh, because nationwide, the baseline that has never changed about addiction is one in five people uh, struggling with addiction, uh, or one in five people who enter treatment programs will complete their programs. Four out of five will leave. And of those who do complete... Again, only one in five people will maintain long-term recovery. So 79% of the people return to their addictions. And that tells us that we are probably not understanding addictions properly, uh, and therefore the treatment modalities we are responding with are not effective. So what I'm gonna give you here are just a few things that I've learned um, just from observing my team. I feel like it has been a very educational process that I've had, uh, just watching my team work and making sure they have what they need, and in my weekly check-ins with my team i kind of am always asking questions they kind of talk about their week and i'm just sometimes looking over their shoulder of these geniuses who are coming alongside because um when you look at those statistics one of the things we're really proud of if you keep that one in five twenty percent baseline our completion rate at the rescue mission is about 38 percent um so we're getting almost twice as many people through the treatment program and what we're really excited about is that our long-term uh recovery rate is at about 52 percent right now so we're getting close to we really want to see if we can get three times beyond that baseline and that's not just some kind of a thing that makes us happy when we look at spreadsheets but we have to realize that that is a human being who has their life back that is a family that is kind of being hopefully led out of some of the trauma that comes with work with dealing with an addict so anyway um But I do want to start with just a little bit of content, um, because as I have, you know, I mean, this was a helpful challenge to get, because what I feel like I've learned is just my life has been incarnational ministry, walking with people who suffer and struggle, and uh, there are some things that, there are some definitions I can come about. So first of all, just, and I think my title of limping along with addicts is realizing, you'll probably hear more about me uh, as we get in this, but, you know, we do not come alongside people with all the answers. In fact, it's in our brokenness and our limitation that we learn about, you know, how to walk with other people. But addiction, kind of the best definition I've found, is that it is repeated involvement with a substance or activity despite the substantial harm it now causes because that involvement was and may continue to be pleasurable and or valuable. So, again, probably very obvious, but it's, we're talking about addiction here. It's somebody that is kind of repeating in behavior. Or substance use. And now we kind of have gotten into, you know, that there's clinical research on gambling and sex addiction and other things like that. Um, And, you know, as we like to say, you know, we are, you know, drugs and alcohol, for instance, are not the problem. Uh, Somebody coming through recovery says, uh, they're benign, I'm the one with the problem because you're not going to fix it. You can't kind of eliminate all these, but it's how we interact with them. And some people uh, run into difficulty and repeated behavior and the problem is is that as we all probably know with something like alcohol which is much more pervasive in our culture you know alcohol can make an evening really pleasant uh and then there are also ways where it can get really destructive and obviously there's a point with addiction when we start to realize that i mean maybe it's not full-blown addiction but when substance use becomes a problem it's when okay now there's some damage being done and that can be obviously you know you know DUIs, running your car in a tree, but it also can be in our relationships, just in how we interact with each other. And that's a lot of times what we don't realize in when there's kind of, you know, codependency in families is one person's, you know, behavior becomes it, you know, starts to damage those relationships and, um, and but at some reason the thing we have to realize is uh, there's something about the behavior or the substance that continues to be valuable or pleasurable. Um, and that's one thing we just have to be honest about, that, you know, these substances, these behaviors, uh, there is pleasure. You know, uh, having too much alcohol makes you feel better. And I understand that if you try heroin or methamphetamine, it gets even better. Um, but obviously, uh, so that's, that's the definition we're walking on. Now, one of the things I want to talk about is, is just a few categories under which we understand addiction, because I think they're helpful in how the church has approached them. Uh, so there's four models, I think, there's there's probably more, there's four that I'm looking at, but the first is the idea of, of a moral model of addiction. And this is, you know, fortunately a bit outdated, but it is still held somewhere where basically that addiction is some kind of sin or moral weakness uh, that a person possesses, and that's why they get wrapped up in that. Um, and you know, the main cure to that is, you know, the main way you address that is people correct their wrongs and they take responsibility for their lives. And what, what I've seen in 12-step programs is there is this appropriate taking responsibility for your life. But uh, the problem is, is that if we're totally saying this is a moral thing, then we make kind of addressing addiction uh, an act of volition. And there are people, you know, who have never done it. My mean, my father was an incredibly disciplined man, and when I started working with people that were on the fringes, you know, he would just be like, you know, sweet man. But he was like, why don't they just stop taking that stuff? And you're like, not that easy, Dad. You know. Um, and so that's that's kind of. But I will say, you know, there. So that obviously, and and a lot of the treatment pro- there are treatment programs still around that deal a lot with shame. And you know, and on the one hand, it is. You know, we have to deal with personal responsibility, but that really is something that we have to mediate very carefully. Um, The second model is uh, that it's a disease. Um, And that is arguably the case. You have to kind of look at the fact that there is something medical and chemical going on uh, with addiction and substance use. And I think that's, uh, but the problem is, is that, also, the disease, if you're looking at addiction as a disease, it it, makes, it takes personal responsibility completely out of it. It makes it biological. And what's troubling, I think, to me as I observe it, is that the cure basically becomes uh, taking another substance or there's some kind of medical address for that. Um, but I think it's, it's important to realize that... Um, well, I'll get into that, but that's so but I think that the, the difficulty is if the disease model is the only lens we're looking at it through, it just takes personal personal responsibility and other element factors out of it. One of the other things that it would take out of it is what drives the, the oh I went psychodynamic next. Okay, well psychodynamic is uh, you know what, I'll give them to you all. Um the last one is socioculture uh the second the third one I want to talk about is the sociocultural model, which is taking a big look at the project of or the big look at kind of what drives addiction and its individual circumstances now um when i graduated college in 1989 i wanted to save the world so i moved into south central los angeles and i ministered there for 10 years with kids and families and gangsters and you know just saw you know had my eyes opened to inequality and injustice and to me what i kind of felt like was wow this is really this is an impressive environment And if I were growing up in this environment and continually had it communicated that I am not worth safe schools, I am not worth a safe neighborhood, I am not worth, uh, you know, I'm not worth the opportunities anybody else enjoys, there's a point where that will beat you down to the point where, you know, I would say, man, if there was a substance, if there was something that could just lift that oppression for a moment, I'd do it. And so that idea is that, you know, kind of the, um, yeah, our environment and You know, and then you kind of look. But then again, you stop looking at addiction as an individual thing. You start saying, "Okay, we need to address these large scale justice and inequality issues, which the church needs to be doing. But in the meantime, uh, it is kind of overlooking the people that are mired in it. Um, And we have to deal with kind of helping individuals in it. And then the last model is called is a psychodynamic one. And that looks into history, traumas, mental illness as being central in what drives addiction. And uh, um, it looks into therapy and tries to address the root of why uh, addiction happens. And I would say, you know, this is probably one, obviously, that the fact that we are a certified treatment facility, we have a clinical director, we have clinically trained counselors, um, is embracing this model and understanding that um, perhaps there's a lot of different things in our environment that contribute to addiction, but kind of the way out of it is is how we've responded to it. Um, and I know there's therapists in this room that can probably speak to this a lot more cogently, but, um, but the fact of the matter is, is I think this idea of trauma being in the heart of addiction is really important because, um, and I think if I had niftier PowerPoint skills that could even put these in order, um, that would be good. But one of the things I can't do is make them kind of see through. So, I figured we all know PowerPoint can do things. I didn't need to show you them all moving together. Um, But, and, you know, I can't even make them transparent, so you see them overlap in some kind of a Venn diagram. But to me, I feel like what's really important, what what I have realized is, and as I watch our staff team work, who are all geniuses, they are somehow kind of trying to meld these lenses together and figure out, okay, how do we deal with this? Because I think sometimes, you know, um, for instance, like my son, I was just my son is uh, uh, is a lieutenant in the 82nd Airborne, and he has been, uh, you know, very highly driven, and he's realized that among the ranks, that is does not go all the way across the board as far as uh, people's motivation. And so he is dealing on weekends. He's dealing with local law enforcement because guys are getting in bar fights and they're getting thrown into jail. And he has to deal with, and he has been dealing with. He had to deal with one person this summer that was basically a functioning addict. And uh, said he was in his apartment and it was kind of one of the things that the entire regiment was turning a blind eye to. And so he was just describing it. And one night he called me, having been at the ER with this guy and having spent 16 hours dealing with him, and just furious. I mean, livid. Just this guy was just... And rightfully so. I mean, the guy was doing what an addict does to survive. And I just had to say to him at that point, okay, Wilson, I get it. It it. You're right to be frustrated, but look at this guy's brain as an organ right now and the organ is not working right because yes everything he's doing terrible choices completely self-centered completely destructive but if his kidney were failing you'd be okay with it you know or you'd be like okay it's his kidney and that's what's that's what so i kind of say there are certain points where it's helpful to take these lenses but to realize that probably if we're going to be successful we are going to have to kind of meld the three models together but one of the things that i guess i would say separate from these models is that I think is pervasive and kind of leads me kind of to the importance of a therapeutic approach is that if I, I'm often asked, what is kind of the typical rescue mission client like? And it's like, oh my gosh, there is no typical client. I mean, literally goes from age 18 to we've had people in their 90s come into the shelter. Uh, but if I, if I boil it down, the most consistent thing I hear is trauma. That if I sit and I talk to somebody and I just start hearing them talking about their life, it is, you know, it's heartbreaking. And to me, it's like, okay, you know what? I am fortunate to be spared that, but if I had to endure what this person endured, I, you know, I might be lucky if I ended up at the rescue mission because it's just devastating. And so I think we have to realize that that, you know, and that's something that I think, is so important as we think about how we as the church respond is that we look at people who are suffering and say, okay, boy, we are the ones who understand grace and we have to be good uh, at extending grace to them. So um, before I go on and let Nikki take over, is there anything, I mean, I, I should have said at the beginning, this is a discussion, but I may, I may have, but any questions or anything come to mind here that we want to talk about before I move on? Yes. Um, you Definition of addiction, uh, the last
0: thing you said about being valuable caught me off guard. Can you explain that a little bit more? Like
1: why someone would be addicted to something that's valuable or what they're thinking about? Them? Well, I think I think well it's it's pleasure that the experience is pleasurable or valuable. So pleasure will make sense. Yeah. I, I would say the same, well, I would say it's the same, the same idea that there's something valuable about, you know, I mean pleasure, I would use pleasure or valuable in exchange that there's personal value, there's emotional value in you know in using substances. That's courage. What's that? Dutch courage, you heard of that? Dutch courage? Dutch courage. 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 Dutch courage. courage.
2: Nobody's heard of that? Yeah.
1: You yeah. Get a drink and suddenly
2: you have confidence. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, I mean I think yeah, I think there's there's I think the value would be sometimes in lifting somebody out of their circumstances that it's you know it's you know a lot of times when I hear Addicts talk, it's just a chance to forget, a chance okay. to get out. And so there's something about that experience that it's there's a draw to it. And yeah. Anything else? Yeah.
0: The the sociocultural piece, clearly, who you're working with um, it is a certain sociocultural group, but addiction runs across
1: sure. the yeah.
0: socioeconomic aspect.
1: Yeah oh totally yeah yeah it's
0: important to
1: say that i think too oh completely yeah Yeah. i think you're i think you're right and i think one of the things that you know i've been very concerned about and kind of depending on where we go next week yeah i mean the yeah what's what's what we're continuing to see is just i mean especially with uh the opioid crisis i mean it is just you know there's there's a whole i mean if you read about kind of you know uh, people's observation, And I think it, some of it is our bias that it was one thing when it was crack cocaine in the 90s when I was living in LA, unfortunately, you know, our culture was like, well, if it's, you know, a bunch of inner city gangsters killing each other and people dying, it doesn't rise to the level of now high school students overdosing on fentanyl in Santa Barbara. Um, I mean, I just was, we were, my board and I have been reading uh, a book about the fentanyl crisis. And one of my board members who lives in the Riviera said, yeah, I've had three deaths in my neighborhood, uh, uh, fentanyl overdoses. So, you know, it's at the same point as somebody who's kind of tried to work for issues of justice, it's troubling to me that, okay, so now we're noticing, but I think you're right. And that that's, and that, and I think the hard part about that is too, is that um, because there is such a pervasive, because of the history of the moral lens through which we look at addiction, where we're like, hey, it's a moral failure. Um, you know, people don't talk about addiction. And if you look at places like Ohio where kind of the, the, you know, Vicodin and Oxycontin took notice. I mean, I was just reading this book, talked about, you know, for about three or four years, people were dying of addiction. And this researcher went and looked, how many times does an obituary mention that? It just says, oh, this individual suddenly died, you know, at 22 years old in their bathroom, you know. And, And there is that, you know, and I think it's what's helpful is for us to, yeah, is to realize, yeah, there's, there's this huge issue of moral failure when it comes to addiction. And it's very you know, troubling and it's very hard, I think, as a family and as an individual to say, this is what we're struggling with. And I think that is probably, um, you know, I, I'd like to think the treatment, I just heard about a treatment facility the other day that, was, uh, that made people sit in the corner and stare at the wall you know, until they change their attitude, which I just think it's like, wow, you know. (laughs) You know, but that's just to me as a sign of, hey, they are still viewing this as kind of a moral thing. Get your head right. Um, And I mean, we we challenge people in our program, but it is trying to figure out what's a meaningful challenge that is not demeaning and shaming. Um, And that's hard. So, um, but I think what I want to do is like one of the things that, and actually it was... Denny Wayman, who once kind of said to me, you know, we were talking about the whole world of ministry and how we are dealing with addiction. And I remember Denny at one point saying that, you know, there's a difference. There's two lenses through which we look at things. Um, one is kind of that of truth and law, and the other one is that of love. And what Denny said is you address things differently if love is the lens through which you look at it. And I think I've realized for me, that's, that's why I kind of want to keep in mind and listen to, you know, talk to people who come through our program and realize, okay, these are precious human beings. This is a child of God who God loves and we respond to them when they suffer with grace. So I think one of the things that was really important to me was that as we wrestle with this idea of addiction, that we never lose sight of the fact that uh, this is a story of human beings who God loves uh, being trapped in it. So yeah, do you have a question?
0: Yeah. Uh, what would be the biggest reason people don't come to the rescue mission?
1: Whew. Man, that is... A, I'll have to think about that one. I mean...
0: Because you're religious or because of pride or... I think there's... It's not because they don't know it exists, right? Yeah. I
1: mean, I think there's a lot of different reasons. I mean, there's, there's... First of all, there's... I mean, yeah. I think when it comes to the addiction program... There are a number of people who, first of all, don't think they need treatment. Um, I have dealt with families in Hope Ranch that, you know, there was one gentleman who was really struggling with multiple kids that had addictions. And talking about it, you know, I was like, well, you know, at one point came up something, and I, I wasn't offering, I don't go out looking for clients, but I was like, well, the rescue. He's like, oh, well, we, we never, never send our kid to the rescue mission, you know, I mean, you know, because it was just like, that's where, that's where, you know that's where bums go, and it's like, well, but your kid, you know. And then we've had kids, we've had kids from all strata of life and come through. Sometimes it's decades later, but I think, yeah. So I think there's, and I think so. Some of it could be. Um, I mean, everybody is resistant to change. One of the things that I have discovered is, I mean, a simple fact is we won't change until the negative consequences of not changing become become Severe, more severe than we're willing. And I, I look at it and I say, you know, one of the things that prevents me from, you know, or one of the safeguards that I have of falling into addiction, it's not perfect, but I have friends and family members. And if I were to drink too much one night, I might get some feedback from them, you know, saying, yeah, we, that was, you know, that was not pleasant. You know, and I think what I find for somebody by the time they come to the rescue mission is that whole social structure is gone. And there is nobody. And, and it's just driven to the point where they have kind of burnt every bridge. So, yeah, you had a question here? Uh, no, Marley,
2: a comment is that why people don't get help. Yeah. It's mainly because one thing is that they they haven't reached their own personal point of disgust. Mm-hmm. And yeah. they haven't stopped digging their hole. Mm-hmm. They keep, and until
1: you stop digging the hole, you can't get out yeah. of it. And they're in this cycle yeah and i think that's where it's helpful to realize that's that's where i think at least for me it's become helpful to realize to kind of look at it look at the brain as an organ that's not working right because you know we have i've had stories of people who've come through our program who i kind of remember standing out in front of the rescue mission looking horrible just filthy and they're like i don't need any help i'm doing great you know it's like well, okay <laughs> even what yeah uh, yeah
0: I- it's one of the biggest industries in the country. It's a multi-billion-dollar industry and full of quackery. And they will wipe your backside and tell you how wonderful you are. If you're paying $19,000 a week or something.
1: And yeah. here,
0: there's no incentive to do that.
1: Yeah, We're yeah. are actually there to help people, and they don't necessarily want to get that kind of help. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. In the back there, and then. Yeah, I had the, I sat next to Michael Ray Richardson, the first on an airplane, the first player to get kicked out of the NBA for uh-huh.
0: cocaine abuse. Mm-hmm. So I had two hours. First time I went into
1: rehab, when I got out, I got high twenty minutes. After. Yeah, yeah. Next time, same thing. He goes, I had to lose absolutely everything. Yeah. Before it changed. Yeah. So, but and he did. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I'm I
0: understanding where the you know there's a breaking point for any individual before they're willing to get treatment. But why do these treatment programs that fail so miserably persist?
1: Well. What? Why are people, how is it that people are willing to, I know, I understand
0: they're lucrative. Yeah. But why do people support them if they actually have a, if, if somebody were to look at their rate
1: of... Yeah. Well, well, it's interesting because when I first got into, I mean, just, when I first got into treatment, one of the things that really drew me to the rescue mission, I was, like I said, I was in South Central LA for 10 years. And I feel like it wasn't until hindsight where you're like, okay, I'm, you know, going into this kind of very difficult environment, trying to extend God's love and the grace of God. And everyone's, man, there are just so many different forces coming against us. And, but what was interesting is what I saw was this self-sufficient, you know, the kind of, you know, gang member mentality was, I don't need nothing. I ain't scared of nothing. I don't, and I kind of feel like one thing's been very refreshing is at the rescue mission, I see how that worked out because I see these guys that are finally like, you know what, I was a hothead. I thought I knew everything. I thought I didn't need anything. And this is what I need. Now, the question about kind of the, um, I mean, one of the things that's very challenging is that, I mean, when, so when I started working with you, I tried to figure out how do you measure success for a f- facility like ours? Uh, One of the things that was very interesting was that one in five statistic I found is about the most consistent thing I could find nationwide. It hasn't changed in 15 years. I've been at the rescue mission, and one of the problems is is that the treatment there is no common set of outcomes when it comes to drug and alcohol treatment. And what's interesting is that like there's one, you know, if I have problems sleeping and you put on infomercials, you see all kinds of treatment. You know, 2 a.m. kind of infomercials and They're ones that talk about 80 to 90 percent treatment and uh treatment outcomes successes and for me i think first of all i always talk about outcomes i realize successes is you know um is a relative you know is it's very hard to quantify what a success is um obviously we want people to never be affected by substance use again uh Does that happen? No. I mean, relapse is is part of recovery. And so what we're trying to train people to do is, okay, so if you relapse again, can you get back into the solution so that your life doesn't spiral out of control with you being in jail again? Um, but I think, I think some of what you could be talking about is, you know, I do want to, it's a great question about why do unsuccessful places stay? Well, I think first of all, you have to, you probably do have to look at recovery a little bit like a baseball batting average that, you know, Somebody who bats 300 is a really good batter. Well, he's not getting on base 7 times out of 10. You know, and that's 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 a kind of a pessimistic view for recovery, but I think we just have to look at it. But I think also some of it is is yeah, if, if we're not being as, you know, I do wonder, kind of your question makes me think, you know, if, if you know, places doing heart surgery were posting the same outcomes, would we be a little bit better in terms of maybe I'm not going to try that. But I do think there is I mean one thing that does concern me is and this is maybe if we're going into the disease you know the prevalence of the disease model is there's a medical cure and there is incredible amounts of money in the industry
0: Mm -hmm. uh, well i feel like we've been duped is probably um, a ridiculous word but in the whole opioid Mm -hmm. epidemic
2: we were duped and so was the medical community complicit Mm -hmm. Prescribing oh, this yeah. stuff that was incredible. But the FDA went along with it. And now, our,
0: as a nation, are we allowing for these mm-hmm. centers to be continuing to collect
1: money, lots of money, mm-hmm. treating people and we're willing to
2: treat them over and over and over again? And nobody's saying, you know, this is Well, a it's a
1: very, yeah, it's a, a very, yeah, it, it's a very complex system. I mean, one of the things that struck me was several years ago, back when the St. Mary, I mean, the St. Mary's property has been on, up on the mountain, has been for sale for a while. And I was contacted by a broker because there were two to three different recovery groups that were wanting to buy the place. And to me, I just started to get staggered because at the time, the price tag was $20 million or something like that. And it just kind of got me thinking, wow, there has got to be a lot of money to be made if people, if, if places like that are thinking, we can make that capital investment to run that facility um, and you know, it didn't happen, but it's still, it's, it's a huge, you know, and that's what I'm struck by is, you know, we've, we don't take any kind of medical funding, anything like, anything like that, because it just, it, a lot of money comes into treatment and, uh, yeah, but it's a good, good question. Um, I'll wrestle, I'll think a little more about that, but one of the things I think is true is that, you know, we have a program at the rescue mission, which is a year long. One of the reasons, I mean, we're completely donor supported, um, and that allows us to do the work that. Our donors who are the people of God want to have done and there's never any kind of contract or profit consideration uh, that comes into play when somebody is not indicating they don't want to stay in treatment you know and so typically in our program it's like we'll clear that we'll make that clear to the person that hey your behavior saying you don't want to be here and if that is really the case it can be a matter of minutes before they're like well you're making a choice here to leave and you have to do that and There are, I could see, whereas I talked to kind of other people in the industry, it's like, well, if, you know, if that contract bed, if your budget's laying, you're like, well, let's give them two more chances. And that then kind of erodes your program credibility and what you're trying to do in the beds, so. um, But as I said, um, the thing we have to keep in mind is that this is, uh, this whole issue of addiction is about individuals uh, who Jesus loves, who are suffering and uh, I brought along an individual who Jesus loves and I love her too. And she's awesome. So I just wanted, I, like I said, I want us to continue to talk, but Nikki uh, is, well, I'll let Nikki tell her story, but to me, it's just going to give us, I want us to make sure that we're always understanding. And I think what your Nikki said is, you know, we're talking about God being in the mess and I think we have to really keep in mind, how do we, you know, I mean, we want to have kind of these larger, larger, systemic discussions but it's how do we extend grace and care to people who god loves so nikki is coming to tell her story with and so they're excited to hear you Nikki. You. Hey. hey
2: so first and foremost i'm very nervous this is probably only Uh, The third time I've done this, besides um, my graduation, which will be a year ago, November (laughs) 13th. That's graduation. But I I completed the program in January for a whole year. So I will be sober, Uh, I'm sober a year and nine months. So in January, I will have two years sober, Um, clean 22 years. And um, yeah, so I'm pretty proud of that. And I was the only woman that graduated that month with my alumni brothers, which was about seven other men. So I'm very proud to say, and I'm honored to be here. And of course, I'm honored that Rolf, the president, who I also get to work with every day at the mission, um, asked me to come and do this. So um, this is my my story. This is the speech I read and uh, spoke to at my graduation so i hope it doesn't disturb anybody you will hear some trauma that i went through growing up but um i'm, I'm proud to say that this is what's gotten me here today from all this uh stuff i did to myself because I was drinking. I didn't, think, uh, I didn't think I did anything wrong to deserve these things, but I know now through my treatment program and what I've learned that I was selfish and I was disrespectful. And I, I blamed myself now for some of these things that occurred in my life from drinking. So I will begin by saying, my name is Nikki. Um, I was born in Encino, California in 1971. My journey to the Bethel House started when I received a text message from my sister, who is here with me today. She was. Um, the text read, "Nikki, if you do not get help and find treatment somewhere today, then I will no longer speak to you or help you again." That was my. That was on January fourteenth of uh, last year. Last year. Uh, that was my rock bottom, I know that you guys were speaking of rock bottoms. When does it happen and that was that was it. That was when my sister texted me i 'm like oh that 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 hurt that killed me. That hurt not killed me but because um, i 'm right here so i <laughs> 'm um, very careful with my words too now today. you know i' kind of try and think before I speak, so um, that was my rocking my rock point i 'm um, getting that touch. Getting that text was my breaking point. I was given the phone number to the Bethel House from Casas Serena. I called Bethel and Irene picked up the phone and spoke to me for about 45 minutes and told me that this was my season and now I've made it through all the seasons at Bethel House. Irene faxed me the application and I faxed it back the next morning. My plan had to drink myself to death. But God had different plans for me. The next day I had an interview with Kelly Thomas. She accepted me and became my tracker. I text my sister and Christina and or I text my sister and my daughter Callie right away and told them I was entering a treatment program for a year. They were so incredibly happy for me. I come from a loving family. I'm the youngest of three girls, Jan and Christina, my older sisters. My older sisters took care of me most of my childhood and they played a major part in my young life and adulthood. They protected me, they watched over me. They were basically my second set of parents. My mom and dad were together until I was around nine. There was a lot of physical violence in the home. My father was an alcoholic and beat my mo- my mother up very badly on many occasions. He beat her so severely-, severely that the police were called a lot, and I can remember hearing my sisters yelling, Call 911. I was scared knowing that my dad was going to jail, but I also knew that what he was doing was very wrong, and I recall getting spanked, but I was never beaten and I was never afraid of my dad. I was scared of my mom, I was scared for my mom and what he had done to her after drinking. I think I blocked a lot of things out though. I loved my dad and always thought he would protect me, which in my eyes he did. I was definitely a daddy's girl. I loved my mom just as much and I felt so badly for her. I recall my mom sneaking us out sometimes in the middle of the night to go away and stay at her friend's house to get away from my dad. We had some good times too as a family. We loved the outdoors, we went camping a lot, spent a lot of time at Lake Nascimento with longtime family friends. I recall having friends over for cocktails and my dad would let me make the drinks behind the bar. They would tip me too. I, was little, I had a piggy bank, I would put those in there. Oh man, made them strong too. Uh, too bad they didn't have Uber back then, but oh, holy palito. Uh, we had family sit down dinners almost every night, and after dinner, my mom and dad would sit and have cocktails while watching the Lawrence Welk show. We would dance and sing and put on little performances. My sister recalls, my sisters recall that dad would let me take sips off of his beer. It was a gold Coors beer can for years after I loved beer, especially Coors. I started drinking around 12, wine, beer, whatever we could find at home, or ask people to buy it first in front of the liquor stores. I was tagging along with my sisters and their friends, drinking and going to parties and having fun. I tried cocaine for the first time at 12 and ended up using it heavily throughout high school and into my 20s. My addiction got so bad that while I was living at my mom's, my dealer would come, uh, my dealer would put my drugs underneath the garage door and she was clueless that I was snorting cocaine all night in my bathroom. I ended up stealing from her. I got a hold of her credit cards and PIN number and was taking withdrawals for hundreds of dollars until I got caught. My sisters found out through her bank statements, and when I returned home one afternoon, after being out all night, the police were there and I was arrested. I stayed in jail in Van Nuys. Sorry. Stayed in jail at Van Nuys. Mom told me that she wouldn't get me out because I needed to learn a lesson, but then she never pressed charges against me. I continued using and I had little jobs here and there but nothing big. Then I got a job as a receptionist for a well-known distribution company of novelty toys and videos of an adult nature. I then worked my way up to executive assistant to the CEO of the company. I then worked in manufacturing videos and my life became so out of control. I was working late hours to help on set, using cocaine to stay awake. I was in charge of making sure the employees were there, they needed to be on time. I was in and out of this industry for many years. I'd get fired from drinking and then just move on to another position. During those years, I was arrested on DUI charges about 10 times. I was involved in hit and runs and fled the scenes. Cars, parked cars, two of them. I was in a horrible car accident that had me fly through my windshield and break my pelvic bone. I had been using men for money to be able to get my alcohol and cocaine and they in return used me. One night I was raped by three men, held down and blindfolded, and I was impregnated by one of them. I didn't follow through with the pregnancy. I had been arrested for domestic violence, battery, and intent to harm. Once in Pasadena, I was arrested arrested for attacking a man at a club. I was taken to jail and then found the business card of an LAPD, they found a business card of an LAPD officer that was my sister's boyfriend at the time, and he was able to get me released to his custody. I trusted him and considered him like a big brother. He ended up drugging and raping me, and it was never spoken of again. I then began dating a man that was into the LA, into the LA County Sheriff's program. I dated him for a short period of time before he beat me very badly. I stopped seeing him, but being with someone in the Sheriff's department and leaving them isn't an easy thing to do. I was being watched, harassed, and threatened on voicemails. I pressed charges, but it took over a year for that case to finally end with a permanent restraining order against him. He had to move out of LA County and could no longer pursue a career in law enforcement. I was really messed up at the point and I did not like cops. I was so angry and hurt and mad at the world. I believed if I was, so, if I was not so intoxicated all the time, I would not be in such bad places at bad times with ill-intentioned men, but I still didn't stop drinking. Then I met my daughter's dad, who swept me off my feet. We had a beautiful daughter named Callie, and she she came and surprised me. They flew her from Hawaii to surprise me on my graduation day, so that was amazing. That was my 50th birthday. I know. Blessing. (coughs) Excuse me. 21-year-old beautiful soul. Her father and I broke up when she was two because of my drinking. I didn't drink, smoke, or use cocaine while I was pregnant, but I relapsed when she was just under a year old. After he found out, he and my family did an intervention on me and sent me to a rehab. I was there for 48 days, which is nothing after a lifetime of trauma and addiction, but I did stop using cocaine. When my daughter's dad broke up with me, I was devastated. I was back to drinking, and it all spiraled out of control. I took a bunch of pills to try and kill myself. I ended up getting help and was diagnosed bipolar manic depressive disorder. I started taking medication for it, but still drinking, so I never knew if they were working. I'm pretty sure they weren't. When I was diagnosed, which I was so blessed to be diagnosed, taking those pills and drinking on them, I never knew if they were working. But I felt good taking that pill, knowing I was doing it. So, I've been in and out of some pretty bad relationships, and none were healthy in any way, shape, or form. My daughter's dad and I are friends, we get along well, and he has supported me throughout my struggles. So I thank him for that. My last relationship was so toxic and abusive on both of our sides. He'd get arrested for abuse, then I'd get arrested for abuse. And it was just a never ending cycle of abuse and drinking. We drank all of my money away and became homeless. My sister Jan let me move in with her if I promised not to ever see him again. I said I wouldn't, but I did, so she made me move out. I was now homeless living in a tent on the beaches of Ventura when I got a text from my sister Christina. That life-changing text brought me to the Bethel House where I've learned to live life on life's terms. This program has offered me one-on-one Genesis counseling with my dear friend, Hillary, classes on self-esteem, anger management, grief, and healthy communication. We have morning devotions, recovery meetings, and I've worked through the 12 steps with my sponsor, Susan. I have a great job now and have had the opportunity to address my some serious medical issues. I'm now a strong, clean, and sober woman who has faith in the loving God. And I want to thank all of my donors. If it wasn't for our donors, I I don't know what we would do. I mean, for a year program, that does not cost anything. And you get all of this, which would cost thousands of dollars. Um, Yeah, I made it through. So that's pretty much my story. I now work at the Santa Barbara Rescue Mission part time. I got offered a job to move back to the Bethel House. So I live there. I'm night security and a house mom to check in with all the ladies. Um, you know, in the morning and at night, and just to be there to encourage them and tell them um, you could do it, because I did. So, awesome. thank you for letting <laughs> me be yeah. Oh, yeah.
1: Thanks. Well, I, like I said, I think you have to have, uh, there's something about hearing the story that I hope shapes our perspective and how we address. You know, this is about people suffering. Uh, this is about, you know, uh, just, you know, what, what what strikes me about, you know, continuing as I've worked with this population is that the, you know, we as the church are stewards of grace. And, you know, it kind of makes me a little bit, I don't know, uh, I take a little umbrage sometimes if I see other people being better at grace than dispensing, or being better at dispensing grace than we are. Because we're the church, we're we're the ones who know grace. And that doesn't mean, you know. And I think what you learn is that, you know, doesn't mean uh, it doesn't mean we don't do it without wisdom. But it also means we are smart in giving people the best. So, uh, any any questions? Anything we can speak to before uh, we wrap up here? Yeah. First off, I want to thank you for your open honesty and your to speak honestly
2: to Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.
0: you. Um, My question is your transition. Um, Going from a controlled environment out into society and being successful. Now, it sounds as though you had a support group around you a lot of that time, though. Um, And so I just would like your input on how that transition part
2: works? Well, you know, I've been drinking off and on. I just, I'm, I'm 50 years old. I've been drinking off and on for 30 plus years. I have caused some, uh, I've made some very bad mistakes. I, 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 I can't sit here and say I didn't think I was an alcoholic. I think I was, but I never went to get help because I was always, I was in jail a lot. So when I was in jail, I was always court referred. So my family was very supportive of me, but I was also lying to them. But I had caused so many problems with them that they said, we, but like I said, the, the transition where I'm coming, where, what I'm trying to say is that it took so long to get here, but it was my family that said, we are going to do no more. And my mom is terminally ill too. And I wanted her to be able to, when she does go. Have that peace of mind that I am sober, and she doesn't have to worry about me anymore. She would stay up all night waiting for me to get home, so I had to thank her and ask for her amends because she's just the most precious woman to me. So,
1: but when you saying, I mean, now talk about the, oh. talk about the relational network that you have now.
2: With them? No, just with, in general.
1: What, what 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 are the relationships that keep you?
2: Oh well, it, well you know I think by the grace of God also that got me back to the Bethel House. And then got me my job at uh, the mission. I'm around recovery. I'm around seeing, especially the men, like the men's program there. They run the same program us women have by on a daily basis. So it's it's nice to be able to be there and be a proven fact that I, I have done this too. So um, I have so much support around me. I I just wouldn't even think about challenging myself again to ever try and go out there and drink or anything like that. So... If that answers your question. Yeah, I don't think anybody has that kind of support though. No.
0: I'm what, what might be a key factor in yeah. staying sober and clean for those that don't have that constant support.
2: Well, I, oh, Go ahead. I can say one thing. Um, that, that's a good question because it, being being back at the Bethel House, but being a part of it, when I was in program, I lost count at 24 of how many women we lost. So there's a reminder for, for the great, I am just that lucky one that can see so many women coming and going that go out there and never come back that I don't want to be that person. I will not be that person. And I I think what,
1: and, and I think part of what, part of what drives somebody like Nikki as I've seen is yeah, there's a resolve to not be that person. And also a humility it realizes they could be and what they needed because you know what I see, I mean, talk About your situation, to use your situation example, you're living on a tent, and your sister, who's probably the last person who had faith in you, is saying, I'm done. Mm-hmm. So at that point, you're completely isolated. And unfortunately, there are people that even that doesn't change them. But one thing that I've seen our staff say to people is, you know, first of all, the reason we bring people in for a year for a number of reasons, uh, but one is to surround them with, you know, give them the, the starting point of a healthy network of relationships with the church community with the 12-step community and with like-minded people who are working toward recovery and what i've often heard said is you know for they tell people you know before you relapse the first thing you must do is achieve isolation and so unfortunately you can see those things you know take people start you know you say gosh we haven't seen you know haven't seen her in a long time i wonder where she is and you just start realizing that unfortunately people will do that again you know and so i think it's maintaining those relationships and the fact that, you know, I'd like to think now, I mean, if Nikki disappeared for a couple days, there'd be somebody texting or saying, I mean, how often do you text with your sponsor?
2: Oh, all the time. Yeah. I mean, it's All
1: the, the time. I a mean, couple times a week. Yeah, there's that kind of, so it's just the fact that, the, and I think about that, like I said, I gave you the example that if I started drinking, you know, my family would say things to me. At this point, I would think that would be enough to get me to say, okay, mm-hmm. I'm getting it together. But there's a point where if it runs enough that, you don't care anymore. And you just get more and more isolated, so there's no kind of check on your behavior. So there's a question over here and then I, I have
0: a, a question. I think for those of us affected by addicts and mm-hmm.
1: extended
0: family, it's important to realize that like in your case, maybe you're kids, not recovered, but you're recovering mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes.
0: And that, mm-hmm. uh, and that love needs to keep going.
1: Yeah. Support, yes.
0: to keep going. Yeah. Um, my question was and you mentioned it, Nikki. But well, earlier in the moral example, you you didn't speak pejoratively about 12-step, or you suggested like that wasn't enough, or something. Like that was part of the moral answer.
1: No, I don't. Oh gosh, no, I don't think I did. No, because I'm I'm a big. If I did, I misspoke. If I gave that impression. Yeah, than, than yeah I'm, a in, well. I'm a big believer in I'm a big believer in 12-step because 12-step 12 12-step 12 is I think taking as appropriate responsibility as we can as human beings. It's admitting our weakness, but also saying there's, my side of the street is important. Supported so. by the Bible. Yeah. 12 step yeah. Uh-huh. Supported mm-hmm. by the Bible. Yes, sir. You know, we hear a lot about uh, enabling in the context of uh, addiction. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you could comment on
2: the patterns you've seen um, among people who live with, with addicts. Yeah. I and mean, we hear about Nikki's sister yeah. drawing that, that boundary. Um, yeah. about boundaries and the tough love that you started your talk with
1: yeah oh I think it's really uh, I mean I think yeah I mean like I said tough love gets thrown I don't want to say that carelessly but I think as I've seen it you know um, the best metaphor I've seen is an addict is you're at a wedding and it's not time to dance yet but the addict is out on the dance floor dancing completely crazy and is trying to pull you out on the dance floor and, you know, making a spectacle, making a scene, saying, come on and dance. And you have to have the, you know, kind of wherewithal to say, yeah, I'm not dancing right now. Um, because that is kind of, you know, that's codependent behavior is being somehow sucked into it. And, you know, the problem is, is, and I say this with all love, but addicts are, manipulative and they are creatures and they are trying to survive and they don't realize they're. you know, it's, it's a little bit like, you know, if it was your child doing it, you'd be like, well, they're being a child, you know, you understand how they do it. But for me, I feel like that is, and I think the people that I've seen that really work well in recovery, um, you know, some of our staff have decades clean, and they are amazingly able to differentiate and to say, Oh, not doing it. You know, I remember the first time I, uh, my first month at the rescue mission, there was some, a client that left treatment, and I was like, oh my gosh, she left treatment, it's terrible. And then I happened to be driving, and I saw her by the dolphin fountain. And I'm on the phone with my staff, she's down here, I see her on the bench at the dolphin, you know. And, you know, and my women's director of time says, do you want me to dispatch somebody or what? And I'm like, yeah, I mean, she we No, well, she knows where the Bethel House is, and she left. And we're not going to go chase her, you know. Yeah. And which is, which... I mean, not all those stories have happy endings, unfortunately. that's the, There are real consequences, and I'm grateful that I don't have to be a family, I've never had to be a family member who us to make those lines, but that's, it's, its you know, I'm not saying it kind of lightly that it's terrifying, and sometimes there are times we have to draw those boundaries, but the difference is is that um, I've also heard one of my staff used to always say, you know, because parents are mired in this, and we have a lot of family members call us, and you know, uh, this staff member, as he kind of, when he saw codependency, he'd say it very loudly, he say, You're killing him right now because you're not changing what you are doing. Will- there is not going to be some point where giving into him is going to change the behavior. So, and he said, We've seen enough people like this that that is certain. We know where that's going to end. And choosing recovery doesn't necessarily guarantee a happy ending, but at that point, it's. Does that speak to the question? It, it's not I mean like I say I don't want to say it flippantly because I've been you know I've, I've, I've heard first person stories where it ended in death you know and I yeah yeah I have a question mm-hmm. what, is, what can we as a church community
2: do to come alongside those persons that have made it through the program mm-hmm. that need a community mm-hmm. what, what can we do what would you I'm say that some of the oh, I yeah. uh-huh. you, can yeah, you help no. me with that one please?
1: well i think to me well i think first of all there's there has to well i think whatever we do you know and i think there are some relics of the moral failure that addiction is You know, and i think one of the things that the church has to realize is we are all you know as I put limping along. We are all broken people. And one of the things that I think is troubling when it comes to addiction is there aren't many sins where perfection is the requirement, you know? And, I mean, what, we, what I've realized is, you know, I mean, I've seen it with churches before where somebody has a drinking problem. And then, you know, through prayer requests slash gossip lines, it's like the person drinks again. It's like, oh, gosh, he drank again. No, 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 no and that wasn't a healthy move but the problem is if I'm going to the men's group and I'm talking about my temper and I'm like okay I really need prayer for my temper you know and kind of guys are praying for it if I come in one day and it's like you know I just lost my cool at my kids it's gosh just said I have a feeling the men's group would say oh don't be so hard on you oh come on you're a good person you didn't you know there's grace and I really hope that for the addict, there's that same feeling of, you know, and that's what I, I see. I mean, I've seen it before in 12 step circles where somebody can have 18 years of sobriety and say, you know what, I drank this week. And the response is not, oh, doggone it, why'd you do it? It's, thanks for coming back, you know? Mm-hmm. We're gonna celebrate, you're gonna stand up as a first, I mean, when you, it's a very, there's a tradition that, you know, 12 steps when you stand up as a first timer and it's a very emotional thing when somebody who's been going to the club or going to the meeting for years stands up as a first-timer because they made a mistake that they slipped. But that person gets a ton of hugs, and it's like, you know what? You came back. You're back in the solution. And so I think that, to me, is the biggest thing that I think... Uh, I mean, I just feel like... I mean, a person is already feeling an incredible sense of shame, and like I said, there's got to be something about the way grace works that I, that I don't think if Jesus came to that person you'd have been like, well, okay, sit in the corner for a while, and we'll decide whether or not we let you back in because that was a pretty big screw-up. So I think that, I think understanding it's a process. I think mainly
0: my question is, how do we make
1: a personal relationship with somebody who is coming out of addiction through your program? Mm -hmm. Because most of us in this Mm -hmm. room are very isolated Mm -hmm. from the community at large. Hmm. Well, I mean, we have... We have mentor opportunities and we have a limited population. And one of the things about relationships is it's hard as you can't script them. So we have different people that come down and sometimes, you know, we had to stop a lot during COVID just with entry into the facility. But I would say, you know, um, I think a lot of it, I mean, one of the things that we try to do with our mentoring relationships is usually it's actually, (laughs) Lee's wife is, a fantastic mentor who comes down and uh, but some of them have gone for years and just uh, but it's just somebody that kind of and one of the things we love about the mentor relationship is it is somebody who is actually not in recovery and we tell them don't be clinical just be a friend and because most of our clients have never had you know they've had very few healthy friendships where it's just somebody coming down so you can do that through the rescue mission you can do that also through you know I've I mean you know, addiction is so prevalent. As we say, there are people in the church that are struggling with it, and I think it's, again, such a silent, a lot of these, it's one of those sins that's very silent. And so, don't have a great answer to you. So, Nikki, yeah? Oh yeah. Uh,
0: well, we can do one more question, okay. and then I was hoping one of you or both of you could just pray a blessing. Sure. No.
1: Okay. Oh, yeah, my question was, do you partner with any agencies or businesses so that when people uh, finish your program... That they have the understanding that, you know, yeah. give these people uh, a chance. Yeah, well, we don't, what we do is actually, you know, it's interesting because our, our employment rate among our graduates is about 98% or something like that. Um, and if you're doing the year-long program like Nikki did, um, you know, you you're in program for three months or for three quarters of the year. The last three months of the year, you're in fourth phase, which means... You get a job and you go out and work. And we don't find jobs for people. We don't, I mean, because one of the things we've realized is, well, we always, where did you work in Fourth Phase?
2: I worked at a Mediterranean restaurant. That was my first job. Yeah. First job and only job. Yeah. I had my hand surgeries.
1: Yeah. But one of the things we, I mean, and there are other models where they start thrift stores and make people work. And we've just realized one one of the things that's really important is we want somebody to have a job that they found. Mm -hmm. And... And what we're able to do then is come alongside them, especially if they're having challenges with their employer, you know, Expect them to show up at the same time every day, you know, and you're (laughs) like, how jobs work, you know, but what we're able to do is, you know, because what we're trying to do is when you're at the rescue mission, the program is 365 days on day 366, you're out. And, you know, we try to kind of help people, you know, sober living, amenable, but, you know, you are, you are going to relapse if you don't have a means of taking care of yourself. And part of people finding jobs is taking care of themselves and also this incredible dignity that comes from people that literally some people haven't worked in years. So, But what we found also is that there are employers that, I mean, we tell people, and there's, some get it, some don't. If you walk in and you tell somebody, I've been in a recovery program for the last nine months, um, you know, we tell people, be open about it, you know. And I've had some businesses that are very... They really like when rescue mission people come. And as one man who ran a gas, owned a gas station said, he said, you know, when somebody tells me I've been in a recovery program for the last nine months, I know they're not making it up. And he said, he said, there's a lot of people, there's a lot of people that come from Oklahoma and they're giving me a bunch of, you know, just businesses where they, he said, I'm not calling Oklahoma for, you know, for, you know, to check these references. And so, um, so I think in general there are, and the other thing that I think is Sony is, you know, we have now we've, I've owned nine, 900 graduates from the rescue mission. They're not all doing well, but there is this network of people in recovery and the recovery community is great. So a lot of times what people start finding is, you know, if there's a there's a few places, there's a few businesses in Santa Barbara where they've got our, you know, they've got, uh, some of our grads working there. And when you find a good employee in your business, you're like, Hey, do you know, anybody else? And, uh, Someday, if I could, we try to protect the, you know, we try to protect the privacy of our our graduates. So I'm glad people like Nikki come and talk. But someday I would love to make a movie about just or some kind of overlay of how many times you are interacting with a rescue mission graduate and you don't know it. Because Mm. my kids have, you know, I always told my kids by law... I can't disclose where I know somebody from, but every now and again, I'll be. the kids got pretty good at knowing if Dad's talking to somebody in a restaurant, the busboy or something like that, they're like, oh, Dad can't talk about it. We know where he you know, where are you at? But it's cool. most of them come up and they're like, hey, I, you know, if I'm with a... It's great when you're doing donor work because somebody will come and say, hey, yeah, I went to the rescue mission, and who are you? And I, you should support it. And I'm like, they do my job for me. So thanks. Um, do you want to pray?
2: No, I'm so nervous. Okay. So okay. do that, that's one thing I need to get used to. Well, I pray, but you know. Oh, trust me. We
1: won't judge you. <laughs> Jesus, we're grateful for this day, grateful for Nikki and her story. And uh, as we just listen to it, may our hearts be soft and open uh, as we desire to extend your grace to people who struggle. So be with us, be with those who struggle with addiction, be with those in our midst who are dealing Uh, firsthand with this and with people that are and allow us to be uh, like you, people that extend grace and care. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Great job.
0: Thank you.